Hey, thanks so much for joining us at uh, Biltmore Church Online. Uh, let me start off before we jump into the text with a few uh, things. First of all, happy Mother's Day, all right? Mama's out there. I hope you have a great, great day. We literally uh, would not be here uh, without you. So happy Mother's Day to you. Thank you for what you do for our families. Thank you for what you do with our church. And so hope you have a fan fantastic day. All right. So again, happy Mother's Day to you and all the mamas out there. Uh, secondly, hey, if you are part of the Biltmore Church family, just realize that this next week, uh, you'll be getting a V-mail from me just kind of starting to talk about what it might look like uh, as far as the procedures and a possible timeline when it comes to kind of partial reopenings and services. Uh, we're not anywhere real close to that right now, but anyway, be on the lookout for that. When you see the V-mail come through, don't put it in trash. Go ahead and open it. And then lastly is, uh, again, if you're around uh, Western North Carolina, just remember tomorrow is a uh, blood drive that we're doing. The community leaders have said, man, that is a huge need for us. And what a great way to demonstrate the gospel uh, as you give blood for people that need it. All right. So you can, uh, uh, if you want to sign up for your appointment, which would be great, uh, go to bloodconnection.org slash Biltmore dash church. All right. So again, all the safety precautions and the social distancing, all that stuff will be taken care of tomorrow. It'll be very safe. Uh, the folks that we're doing it with, great professionals. So anyway, put that on your list. All right. Here's kind of where we are. We're going to finish up a series today called What to Do When Life Gets Hard. What to do when life gets hard. And what we did is the la last week and then this week, we have looked at what is arguably the most famous passage in the entire Bible. All right. People have this uh, above their kitchen table. Some of them have them crocheted. Sometimes it's needle pointed. Sometimes you, you even have it memorized and it's Psalm 23. And it has provided great comfort down through the years to so many, many people. Uh, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Here's what we saw last said last week and what we want to do this week. And that is this, we want to go from, hey, I know that to, hey, I do that. We want to go from information, information to operation. All right. How do I download this actually into my life? And as we look at, uh, as we look at this and then we'll start a new series next week, just understand uh, what we talk about here all the time is, is the gospel. All right. The gospel is, and the gospel does. So the gospel is basically in the uh, substitutionary death and the victorious resurrection, the sinless life of Jesus. He has won the victory. All right. It's not what we do. It's what Jesus has already done. But sometimes when we talk about the gospel and talk about the fact that Jesus has won the victory, a lot of times people are like, man, I don't feel really victorious in my life. Or how come I still succumb to certain temptations? Or how come I still walk in depression or despair and defeat? How come that is? Before we jump into the text, let me just relate a story that might kind of put it in a, in a frame for us. Uh, last summer, Lori was actually up in Oklahoma uh, taking care of her mom. And it was a Saturday and I was out putting some actually grass around a fire pit that we had put in. And as I came in, I, walk, I had Ranger with me, my German shepherd. We, as we came in, something out of the corner of my eye caught my eye on the lower patio. And I looked over there and there's a snake, all right? Pretty good size, not enormous, but five feet or so. You're like, what kind was it? I don't really know. But as I looked at it closer, it appeared to have those, it has the, 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 pits over here so that I'm like, okay, that's a poisonous snake. That is a bad snake. I think it was a copperhead. Bottom line is what I did. I go in the garage. First thing I could find was actually a pitching wedge golf club. I go out and I'm trying to do it. And that thing wraps around the pitching wedge so fast. I just dropped the pitching wedge. I then run in and I grab a, a shovel. As I grab the shovel, I go out there and I just, 
I cut the snake's head off, first try. And as the body's still right there and that head is right there, I took the body and I took it and I threw, basically I threw it in the backfield. But the head of the snake, what I did is I would very carefully put it in a container and then secured it and then put it in the trash. You're like, why would you do that? Because one thing I do know about snakes is that even after they are dead, even after the head has been severed, if you step on that or if you grab the head too quickly after you severed its head, based on the reactions, based on the, the venom in the, the fangs, it can still hurt you. People have actually died after the snake has actually been killed from being bitten by a snake. Now, here's my point. Jesus secured the victory on the cross, all right? Satan was defeated, but he is still dangerous. And so oftentimes Christians who don't live in victory at all, what has happened is they either by conversation or being careless, what they've allowed to happen is they've allowed the enemy to come in and steal the victory that Jesus has already secured. So what we're gonna do today at this last couple of verses of Psalm 23 is we're gonna to go to a place about uh, do not let the enemy uh, sit at your table. There's actually a great Bible teacher named Louis Giglio who actually spoke at Biltmore uh, Church oh, maybe a year, 15 months ago, something like that. In one of his books, he talks about the fact that he was losing victory, he had no abundance, he was stressed out, he was angry about what people were saying about him. And he was texting a friend of his about how this thing was getting him so down. And his friend, said this, his friend just shot him a text back that said this, simply, don't give the enemy a seat at your table. It's like, don't give the enemy a seat at your table. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna borrow most of that title and just tell you this, don't let the enemy get a seat at your table. So before we get there, here's basically where we are. David is the guy that wrote Psalm 23. The first three verses are those ones that are like such awesome poetry. People love those. If you, know, if you know any of the verses by heart, you probably know the first three. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. I mean, those are all such great, tranquil settings. This is what the Lord does. You get to verse four and it starts to get a little bit more turbulent. You start to see conflict, you start to see enemies, you start to see adversaries. That's where we're going today, all right? We're going to verse four, five, and six. Primarily, we're gonna to go to verse five and six. And uh, in verse four, he goes from talking about the Lord. The Lord is this, because he's in turbulence, he starts talking to the Lord. So here's verse four. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now for David, the shadow of death, probably as he looked back on his life was probably when he was a shepherd and he was taking the sheep and he actually had a valley or he had to go through that had cliffs on the side and predators would be there. And so he was literally fearful of his life. Uh, and in our lives, there's a lot of ways that death can rear its ugly head. Sometimes it's physical, and that's where some of you are now. Physically, you're very concerned. Maybe you got a bad doctor's report. Maybe somebody you love has uh, either gotten very sick or has actually even died recently. Very difficult time for you. 
Other types of death that come into our life as well as physical death uh, would be things like the death of a the death of the relationship. You're like, you know what? My marriage is dead. It is dead. It is DOA. It's dead. Other times it's not just a relationship. Maybe it's a dream. Some of you have lost your business. You know what? My business is now dead. And what David is saying is kind of what we want to be able to grasp and what we're going to try to unpack today. And that is, he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And so it's an even though and I will type of faith, even though and an I will, even though this happens, even though my circumstances are not awesome, I will still trust in the Lord because he is with me. And you see that throughout the Bible. You see so many of the heroes that we look at to say, you know what, they had an even though and an I will. I mean, you can go back to like Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel is like in the lion's den. He's like, even though I'm in the lion's den, even though the big cat might eat me, even though that's the case, I will still trust in the Lord. Uh, Paul and Silas, if you look in the book of Acts, Paul and Silas, they're preaching Jesus. They get thrown in jail, not for what they did wrong, but for what they did right. And they're sitting there and even in stocks, they begin to sing. It's basically, even though we are in prison, I will rejoice in the Lord. You can go to a lot of the minor prophets like Habakkuk. Habakkuk's like, even though, even though the pen is empty, even though the crops are not coming in, I will still trust in the Lord. And loved one, that's what we're, that's what we're trying to get to. Even though right now, it's like not a great time for so many people, I will still do this. And that's what you see in David's life. And what he says is, the reason is for you are with me. Not just you help me, but you are with me. And just think about the difference that alone would make if we actually believe that and practice that every day. That you know what, when you get that dreaded phone call, it's not just that God will help you, but that God is actually with you. God's with me in this. When you go to bankruptcy court, God is not just going to help me. God is with me. Okay. When you go through that terrible divorce, God is actually with me. When you go into that chemo treatment, God is with me. So here are the verses that I've been trying to work toward. Verse five and verse six. All right. If you have a Bible, Bible app, underline, highlight, a couple of words I'm going to show you. Verse five says this, you prepare, and this is our whole picture today. You prepare, he's talking to God, not about God. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now listen, I love that. I love that because he says, he doesn't say it the way I would say it. If it was me writing this, I would say, you prepare a table in the absence of my enemies. That's not what he says. He says, you prepare a table for me. I mean, this is amazing. The God of the universe, he's saying, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And what you got to understand is this whole picture, this picture is a picture of the God putting a table for you to then sit at and relate to him. This is a picture of a relationship with God. That's why I always talk about it. It's not about religion and it's not about the rules. It's about a relationship with God. Because even nowadays, a table, if you were to sit across with somebody, your spouse or your significant other or anybody, it's like, you know what? This is, this is a time of, of intimacy. This is a time of conversation. This is a time of talking. This is a time of fellowship. We talk about, well, you're going to break bread together. This is so much better than a conference room or a board meeting. This talks about relationship. And like multiply that times a factor of 10, when you go back into David's culture, 
This took hours to prepare. It took a great celebration, great preparation. All this is talking about, you know what? Listen to me. God wants to have that relationship with you. We, we looked at last week the fact that John 10 says, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. In other words, Jesus says, I'm the shepherd of Psalm 23. I'm the good shepherd. But he says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. The word know there, K-N-O-W, is the idea of experiential knowledge. You know what? My sheep know me. They have an experience with me. They have intimacy with me, conversation, abundance. All of this speaks of abundance, celebration, all this stuff from the first few verses that he talks about. He leads me, he guides me, he makes me, he restores me, he comforts me. All of that is in a relationship with God through his great son, Jesus. Now, here's what you got to understand is if we are not careful or if we are conversational or careless, conversational with the enemy, here's what will happen, is in the midst of this table right here that's supposed to be you and the Lord talking, your enemy will try to pull a seat up at the table and interrupt what's going on between you and the Lord. You and the Lord got this great thing going on. You're like, I'm so satisfied, my walk is so on fire. I'm filled with so much joy. I mean, I'm growing. And then all of a sudden, if we're not careful, your enemy's going to pull a seat up at the table and try to start a conversation with you. That's why John 10, where Jesus says he was the good shepherd, John 10, 10, which is kind of a famous verse, but it's usually out of context. It says this, he says, the thief, talking about your enemy, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. It says, who's pulling up to the table. He might look nice. He might act nice. They might smell good, but he's trying to do one of three things. He's trying to kill, steal, or destroy. Steal your marriage, destroy your kids, whatever that is. He's trying to get a conversation going. And so what I'm going to try to show you is this. Don't let him come up and interrupt what's going on between you and the Lord. So as we go on to this, here's what you got to understand. The good shepherd wants to have that abundant personal relationship. The enemy wants to interrupt that. You're like, well, what would he be doing? What's his strategy? Let me read verse six and take from verse six, two things that not only did David experience, but at some point, and we don't know when exactly David wrote Psalm 23, scholars differ. Most scholars say David writes this as an older man looking back on the way the Lord had moved in his life. That's what I would think lends itself to that. He reflects back when he was a young boy as a shepherd and then the progression and the journey that God took him on. Some people say, well, he was actually a shepherd. We don't know exactly when, but what you're going to see is assuming it's, is he's an older person, there's a lot of years on David, a lot of experience, not all of them good. And he looks back and says, here's what I've learned, but here's what verse six says. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now listen to me, loved ones. Goodness does not mean some kind of generic, positive thinking, well, hey, karma is going to give me good stuff. That's not what he's talking about. When he says goodness, he's specifically talking about God's goodness. He's talking about God being good to him. It's talking about, you know what, this thing going on right here, this is the best thing there possibly could be. And uh, how do you know if the enemy's sitting at your table? How do you know if he's sitting at your table? I would say two things. Number one is you think that there's a better table somewhere else, all right? 
You think there's a better table somewhere else? So you're sitting here right here, the Lord's sitting here, all this is awesome, dinner's going great, conversation's going great, and then somehow, someway, the guy right here starts to say, hey, you know there's a better table right over there? Look over in that corner, don't you see? Doesn't that food look better? Doesn't that company look better? Doesn't that look a lot better? Why don't you go over there to that other table? Because I know the Lord's nice and all, and I know he's sweet and all, and I know he's been pretty good to you and all, but look over there. Don't they look like they're having more fun than you? So how does he do it? He starts the conversation saying, hey, there's a better table somewhere else. And David knew this, all right? David knew the pain of letting the enemy sit down at his table start a conversation, starting questioning the goodness of God. And what you and I know is of the famous story of David and Bathsheba, one of the most famous stories in the Bible. And there's David, he's walking with God, he is successful, he's a general, he's admired by people, he's got a stable family, all that stuff is going on. And then one normal day, just one normal day, he didn't expect his life would change that day. He just got up one morning, was walking around, and everything changed. And the way it started is the enemy pulled a chair up to his table and said, you know what? Hey, there is a better table over there, and that better table is a married woman on a roof taking a bath. Why don't you go take a look over there? And the longer he looked and the longer he conversed with his enemy, all the dominoes began to fall. He, be, he slept with her. He called for her. He slept with her. He covered it up, murdered her husband, who, by the way, was one of his best soldiers. And some of you are like, yeah, but God, got, you know, God forgave him. God forgave him. God did forgive him, and God will forgive us. God did forgive him, but the consequences in David's life were huge. His family was never the same after that episode. It was never the same. Some crazy family stuff started to happen. His kingdom in many ways was never the same. His leadership as an influence, that was never the same anymore as well. So here's what you gotta know is if the enemy is at your table, if the enemy has pulled up a seat and is trying to get you to converse with him, what does that look like for you and I? I mean, he's not gonna pull a chair up here and have a pitchfork and red suit and pointy tails. That's not it. That's a caricature of what was portrayed. That's not even the way the Bible describes your enemy. What does that look like? What that looks like is uh, the first thing uh, he is saying is, you know what? God's not that good. He's not that good to you and you really can't trust him. You're like, well, who would believe that? Well, it's been pretty successful down through history. Even if you go back to the first book of the Bible, to our great, 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 however many grandparents, Adam and Eve, the first thing Adam and Eve were te was tempted with was to question the goodness of God. Now, you might not have ever thought about it that way, but think about it. Adam and Eve had everything. God was so amazingly good to them. I mean, here it is. You got this whole thing out here. All you got to do is, is, is work it, which is not even hard work. You work it, and then you be fruitful and multiply. You run around naked and make babies. I mean, that is like not a bad life at all. But one day, the conversation began, and it went something like this. Don't you know that God's really holding out on you? Don't you know there's some goodness that he is not sharing with you? If God really wanted to be good to you, here's what would happen, and he would let you eat all those trees. You know what Adam Eve should have said? They should have said, man, get off of our table. Get away from us. What are you talking about? God has been amazing to us. Look at us. We're running around naked. Look at us. We've got no fatigue, look at us. It's awesome to work around here. This is great. That's what they should have said, but they didn't. 
after some conversation, I was like, yeah, maybe God's holding out on us from that one thing because maybe that's the best thing. And next thing you know, the whole thing is crashing down on them. That tree, that tree, that's the better one. And what, what do we do today? I mean, you hear that, I hear that, you hear that, it's like a rerun all week long. It just has different faces, but we say basically that's the better one. That's the better wife. You know what? You see somebody's wife and I mean, how many affairs even in church has started by somebody saying, you know what? If I just had that wife, you know what? If I just had that husband, that's the better one or the better family or the better circumstances or the better job. And even nowadays, it's really, really hard now because there was a time, even like when I was a kid, when I was a kid in grade school, that was a great school. There's only about 25 other people that I even compared my life with. And they were the people in my class. If I was in kindergarten, I had that many people in my class. And I could just look around and say, hey, how am I comparing with these people? All right. Nowadays, it is, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Why? Because the world is now kind of flat. You can see everything with everybody. And uh, you look on social media and you see somebody get a, you see somebody get a new truck and you're like, all of a sudden, you know, your 10-year-old truck used to be pretty awesome. It started most of the time. It was paid for, which was gravy. That was great. Then somebody posts, you know, the brand new Ford F-250 flat black paint, all this stuff. And you're like, all of a sudden, my truck's not that good. My truck's not that good. I need a new truck. Now, you can just take this. That's, that's the silly part, but it gets, it gets much more serious. Then it gets to be like, hey, her husband posts all the time and they're always kissy and lovey-dovey and having a date night. Man, I wish I, had a, I wish I had a husband like she has a husband. You laugh. Happens every week. Every week. People look and say, uh, you know, they got the perfect meal. Well, my meal's not that good. Why don't you cook like, why don't you cook like her, the perfect you see somebody, especially now, and you're like, how do they get a haircut, all right? The rest of us are looking like Chewbacca. We can't get a haircut during quarantine. How has she got a haircut? It even goes to church. You look at somebody else's church, you're like, man, that church is great, and this church has that. And then what happens is, whether it be a church, a spouse, a family, a job, a circumstances, or a car, what happens eventually is you start envying that enough, and several things happen. Number one, you start to question, like, is God holding out on me? Is God holding out on me? But even worse yet, what happens is when you and I do that, we don't even get to enjoy all the abundance and the goodness that God has already given us. My uh, younger boy, he lives up in New York City. And um, at the start of this whole COVID deal, everything is the idea that he got, he got it, but as a young guy, hardly any symptoms. But the symptoms that he did have, and he, to have, and he, he's already gotten them back. But what he did is he lost his sense of taste and he lost his sense of smell, which I didn't even know until that time that that was a, that was a symptom of having COVID-19. But I remember talking to him and he's like, man, it is so weird. He said, it's not having any taste at all is so weird. He's like, I'm eating my favorite foods, but there's no taste. And he goes, I just, nothing tastes good at all. And that's what it's like. That's what it's like when we are continually saying, you know what, God's holding out on me. Even the stuff God has given us, we're like, man, there's gotta be a better table somewhere else. Somebody else has got it better. Maybe that's the table that I need to be at. And uh, it's especially vulnerable in difficult situations and in isolation like so many, like we're, like we're experiencing to some degree or another, all of us right now. 
You know, when you're going through pain or you're going through loss or you're going through isolation, what happens is it's very easy to begin to think, man, this is hard and this is difficult. And why is God holding out on me? Why doesn't God fix this X, Y? You just fill in the blank. I would just, I would just give you one verse personally that is for my family, my household, this has meant the world. And I've mentioned it to you, I think enough times, or at least the Biltmore family enough times where I've gotten... I've gotten a number of different things that remind me of this verse, all right? I've gotten bookmarks, all right? I've got a coffee mug with it on there. I've got, uh, uh, I've got some little container, all right? It looks like an ashtray. It's not an ashtray. It just looks like an ashtray. And, and what it says is it says Psalm 2713. Psalm 2713. You might want to just jot this down. It's only a couple of pages over from Psalm 23. But here's what it said, and I want to make a couple of points about this before going on to the second point of don't let the enemy get a seat at your table. And that is this. Psalm 27, 13 says this. Some translations preface it by saying, I would have despaired, but it says this. It says, I believe, every word's important here. I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So this is David again. I believe. So he's making a choice. You know what? I can't see it yet. I don't, I don't understand what God's doing, but you know what? I'm making a choice that I'm going to believe God in this situation, whatever that situation was. He's like, I was, I was tempted to despair, but I believe, he said, that I will see. In other words, I'm not just going to hear about it. I'm not just going to see some God at work video testimony at church about some great story about a marriage being saved or a prodigal coming home or a health issue being taken care of or a financial situation coming back. He says, I believe that I will see, I will personally see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In other words, this is not something as awesome as heaven's going to be. He goes, I'm going to see somehow, some way, I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord right here, right now. And so I would challenge you to claim that, to own that, to memorize that, that I believe that I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. When your enemy wants to take a seat at the table, that is a verse you can take and say, you're not welcome here, all right? This is a reservation for two, all right? It's not three, it's two. It's me and the Lord, so back off. And the way you do that is not by acting like, hey, I'm a tough sheep. How I many of you ever seen a tough sheep? No, sheep, we're defenseless, all right? What football team has ever named their team after a sheep, all right? I don't. Somebody might have one over in Europe or something. I'm just telling you. I'm not, I'm, nobody does that. Maybe the Rams, all right? But nobody's, it's not, it, no, it's stuff. It's like the, the Wildcats or the Leopards or the Jaguars or even the Hornets or something, all right? It's never going to be like Hey, we're the sheep. You know, we are bad. I mean, nobody's ever going to, nobody's ever going to say that. Here's the point. Psalm 27, 13. I believe that I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Apply that to your context. I believe, I believe I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord and my business is going to come back. I believe there's going to be a day before I die where I'm going to see that marriage restored. I believe that I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord when that prodigal drives back in the driveway. I believe I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord to see my spouse saved. Whatever that is, just say, you know what? I'm not letting the enemy have a seat at my table because you know what? The other tables aren't nearly as good as the table I'm at right this minute. That's number one. Number two is based on the other word. He said, surely, Goodness, my translation says mercy. 
you know the enemy's trying to get a seat at your table, number one, when you're like, other tables are better, but really number two is also, is when you don't think you're welcome at the table to begin with. Just don't think you're welcome. You don't, even, you don't think you're invited to the table. Like, what do you mean by that? All right, you, the word there that is translated in my Bible is translated, it's translated mercy. Some of your translations, you're like, oh, that's not what my Bible says. And there, there's a reason for that. The reason is it's a word that is, it's a big, broad, beautiful word that's hard to translate into English. The Hebrew word is the word hesed, H-E-S-E-D. And it's translated three or four different ways in different translations because it's, it's hard to, we don't use that word. It's not just love. It's sometimes it's translated steadfast love. Sometimes it's translated covenant loyalty. Sometimes it's translated mercy. But what it is, it's the idea of, it's the idea of God's love for us. It's actually the number one way that David, the word that David uses to describe God's attitude toward his kids. It's used like 286 times in the Old Testament. Hesed, covenant loyalty. And what it means is stubborn, relentless love. It means, you know what? If you have a bad day, I'm not leaving. All right. If you blow it and you're faithless, God's saying, I'm faithful. Okay. If, if, if you just have this horrible, leave me, I'm not, you might be leaving me. I'm not leaving you. This is a word that is like, this is the, this is the CPR for the Christian when all hell is breaking loose and you're like, I can't feel God's love. I can't feel God's love. This is what says, you know what? Even, even if it is all bottomed out, even if I have blown it, then guess what? God is not leaving me. Now again, David should know this. Now David, first thing we saw is David, there was a day when he let the enemy pull up to his table. He said, there's a better table over there and I'm gone and he suffered the consequences. If you know the whole story, David stays quiet about it and hides it and runs from the Lord, tries to run from the Lord for somewhere around a year. He finally gets confronted. God sends a prophet, and that's what God usually do, does, and he sends a prophet or somebody to talk to you and say, hey, listen, let's get this straight. He sends a prophet, and then Psalm 51 is David's confession. And don't turn to it, but just notice verse 1 sometime. Here's what it says. David uses this same word, and he says, Psalm 51, verse one, he says, be merciful to me. And he's talking about his sin. He's talking about doing some horrendous things. He's talking about committing adultery and cheating on his vows and trying to cover it up and betraying one of his soldiers and then killing one of his own soldiers. I mean, that's some bad stuff. But here's what he said after a year of God pursuing him and God convicting him. He said, be merciful to me, O God. And the next phrase is key. He says, according to your loving kindness, same word, according to your mercy, according to your hesed, according to your covenant love, according to your stubborn love. He says, I'm not coming to you based on what I've done. I'm not coming to you based on my resume or my accomplishments. I'm coming to you based on the fact that, you know what, you've got a covenant, you've made a covenant with me and you're faithful even when I am faithless. And again, that tells us a couple of key things. There's two ways you can approach God and just in big picture, big picture ways, two ways you can approach God. First way people try to approach God is based on what they've done, based on what they've done. And this varies dramatically, but you know, in 
church life, it might be, you know what, I go to church or I volunteer or I give or I do whatever, I'm a nice guy, I pay my taxes. That actually is called self-justification. Whatever it is I'm doing, I'm trying to justify myself based on what I've done so that then you will reward me and reward is whatever they think God owes them. That's a terrible, terrible way to try to be justified before God. God's standard is perfection and none of us meet that. The second way, the best way that you approach God is based on what God has done, who God is and what God has done. One of the favorite verses here at Biltmore Church is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Early church father called this verse the great exchange. And here's what it says. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says this, he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, the New Testament word for the Old Testament word, hesed. Old Testament, steadfast loyalty. I can't describe it. What does it mean, covenant loyalty? The New Testament equivalent is grace. It's grace. God's grace toward us. And so what you have to understand is the shepherd of Psalm 23 is the great shepherd of John 10, 10, who says, I lay down my life for the sheep, is also the one in Psalm 22 who cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 says, everybody, they're mocking me, they're putting, they're piercing my hands. And so when you look at that and you combine that with 2 Corinthians 5, which you, you put those two together and you understand, you know what? The gospel deals with the deepest needs that I could ever have that it, Jesus takes his resume of all that he did and he puts it to my account and he takes all of my sin and puts it to Jesus' account. So a lot of times people, what difference does that make? What difference does that make? It's just church talk, it's not. Some of the deepest needs, just think about how the gospel applies just to those. Let me list four or five of them. Gospel applies to guilt and shame. Guilt and shame, when you're at a table like this, you got this great thing going on and he comes up here and he says basically like, you did it, you did it. Not only did you do it, you are it. That's guilt and shame. They're a little bit different. Guilt is feeling bad because of what you've done. It's an action. Shame is deeper, all right? Shame is your identity, who you are. You're like, it's not just what I've done, it's who I've become, all right? And you and I, if we don't deal with guilt in the right way, all right, if we don't deal with guilt by going and running to the Lord in repentance, if we don't deal with that, then guilt eventually turns into shame. And you have put an enemy at your table and you've given him a lot of leeway. So when it comes to guilt and shame, Jesus took the guilt so you didn't have to. Jesus takes the shame so you don't, there's no shame left for you. Jesus takes the condemnation so there's no condemnation left for you. Before all the COVID started, we were in a series on Romans 8. And Romans 8, 1 is probably, man, it's got to be a top three Bible verse in the entire Bible. And it says, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That if you're in Christ Jesus, there is no more condemnation left for you. My good friend, J.D. Greer, who, if depending on how this whole coronavirus and reopening, all that stuff happens. He's scheduled to preach at Billmore Church in October. He's the first one I heard say this. He says, there's nothing you could do right now that would make God love you any more and nothing you could do that would make him love you any less. That is life-changing. That I can't do anything more. So he's like, I love him more. He's such a good guy. I love him more. Great Boy Scout. Or if you have a terrible day, he's not going to love you any less. 
A lot of Christians think God loves them more because they do good or they're more Christ-like. Here's a great quote I, I saw from a guy named Rankin Wilborn. Let me just quote it to you. He says, God doesn't love you to the degree that you are like Christ. He loves you to the degree that you are in Christ, and that is always 100%. That's amazing. What that means is if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, then God loves you to the same degree as like when Jesus was preaching the how, how pleased was he when he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount or when he was feeding 5,000 or when he was resisting temptation for 40 days? Okay, that's an impressive resume. That says that his resume gets put to your account if you're in Christ. It's not just that you're forgiven, you are actually made righteous. You're like, I don't, I don't feel real righteous. As a matter of fact, I have no clue. I've got so much guilt and shame that you don't even... You can't even imagine, and you don't even, you don't even know what I've done. How can you sit there and say, well, you can be forgiven because you don't even know what I've done, preacher. You don't even know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know how long I've been gone. I do know that you can't out the cross of Jesus. I know that. You're like, well, how do I get that? That's the best deal. It is the best deal you're ever going to be offered. And so if you're not a believer, what you need to do right now in the comfort of your own home is to cry out to God for his mercy and his loving kindness, his hesed, his grace, and say, you know what, Jesus, when you died on the cross, that somehow counted for me, and I believe. So be the boss of me. Change me. Make me the person who you want me to bring me to bring glory to you and be for the good of other people. And that is an awesome beginning. A lot of believers, you need to preach the gospel to yourself every day because when we sin— even as a Christian, when we sin, if you don't understand hesed, if you don't understand grace, if you don't understand 2 Corinthians 5, we say it all the time here, we will run from God. David ran from God for a year. As a matter of fact, one of the saddest, look at Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, and you'll see the misery that David was in as a believer, but he was covering up his sin, covering up his sin. When he covered up his sin, he was miserable. When he uncovered his sin, God restored to him the joy of his salvation. If that's where you just, again, run to God in repentance, Christian. Don't run from him in shame. You got a bunch of other ones. You've got uh, guilt and shame. You've got identity. You got identity. Identity is kind of who you are or who you see yourself. Your identity is when you look in the mirror, who is that guy? Who is that girl? And it's so easy to lose who that is, especially today when people want to just smack a label and say, you know, this is who you are and you are this person, you are this uh, bank account or you are this uh, performance or you're this resume. And I think it's why I, kind of, I love the Jason Bourne movies because the fighting's awesome, uh, the stunts are awesome, but the whole storyline's awesome as well. You got a guy who didn't, he, he didn't know who he was and he's searching, who am I, who am I, who am I, who am I, who am I? I mean, they've been calling him one thing. You're Jason Bourne, you're Jason Bourne, but he's not, he's David Webb. That's who, he's That's who he was born as. And what you have to understand is, listen, you have to understand your identity is not your past, all right? It's not your performance. It's not what you're pretending to be, okay? Who you are, if you are in Christ, is who Jesus says that you are and what Jesus has spoken over you in the gospel. That makes all the difference. So when you look in the mirror, I mean, people talk all it self-esteem, self-worth, self-hate, whatever. It's called identity. When you look there, you got to be able to say, I'm loved, I'm valued, I'm led. Just look at Psalm 23. I'm part of the flock. All right. I'm comforted. I'm invited to sit at his table. All right. He's provided a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And so in other words, I don't want my enemy sitting here at the table. And one of those enemies is you're not invited. You are invited. So it goes to your identity. It goes to, uh, it goes to your guilt, to your shame, goes to your worth goes to your worth. 
People are like, well, you know what, I'm worth this, I'm worth that. Here's First Peter. Here's what Peter would say. It says, you were ransomed, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Here's what I would just say this. If you're like, I'm not sure what I'm worth or I feel rejected, you are worth, uh, you are worth Jesus to God. Think about the enormity of the price that was paid for you. People are like, well, that's only worth what you would pay for. And that's true. You put something on eBay, you can think it's worth a lot, but until somebody comes along and says, you know what, I want that lamp or I want that wagon or whatever, and here's what I'll pay for it, you really don't know what it's worth. And what you've got to understand is that Jesus paid a lot for you, which is an expression of the worth that you have. It goes to... Uh, goes to love because, you know, people say, you know, the main thing I need, I just need to feel loved. I just need to feel loved. And the problem with it is it is that in times like this in a quarantine or when you've lost your business or maybe your home is stressed or your financial picture is bleak or your health picture is bleak is oftentimes we're like, I don't feel loved. I don't feel like God loves me. I feel like he's abandoned me. And I understand the feeling. You can feel like that. But again, your, your feelings are not the facts. Your feelings are not the facts. All right. They're not, you're not. Feelings are great. We always talk about it here. Feelings are, a, they're an awesome caboose on the train of the Christian life. But the facts, the facts have to be what, what, what the engine is. It's pulling the feelings along, right? And when you saturate yourself with enough facts, the feelings eventually will change, all right? I've told you before, if somebody can't, you know, you're like, oh, no, feelings are feelings. And they are, they are, but they should be driven by the facts. If somebody comes up to you and it's like, hey, you, Sorry, but we looked and somebody just stole $50,000 out of your bank account. You're now 50,000 in the red. There would have some feelings that you would have of dread and misery and panic. But if they're like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That wasn't a minus sign. That was a plus sign. Somebody deposited 50,000 in your bank account. Those feelings would change, would they not? Yeah, they would change. They would go from misery and panic to a party and joy. In the same way, when it comes to feeling love, just please hear me on this. Very important. Your perception of the love of God is not based on how you feel in a given moment or how well your life is going. It is based on the fact that God sought you and bought you and forgave you at the cross. Because here's what you got to understand. If in the Christian life, if you're going to say the way that I interpret God's love for me is going to be based on my feelings. You're just, it's, you're going to be more like a roller coaster up and down, up and down. Your circumstances are bad. God doesn't love me. You know, circumstances are good. God loves me. But if you can understand, you don't ever have to doubt God's love for you because of what he proved on the cross. All right. So it's based on the cross, not circumstances. Then it's not going to be a roller coaster up and down. It's going to be an anchor for your soul during times like this. All right. So again, here's what, here's the challenge is this is, this is you and Jesus. All right. Don't let the enemy come up and say, there's a better table somewhere else. And you're like, God's not good. He's holding out. That's one way. That's one way to get in trouble. Second way again is to sit there and go, you know what? I'm not welcome at the table. I've messed up. I can't go to the table. God invites us to the table. And so Psalm 23, the whole thing is amazing, is it not? I mean, Psalm 23 is amazing. Uh, when I think of Psalm 23, I'd encourage you to memorize it. If you hadn't already, or maybe you got half of it memorized, you got the verse four, even though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, but you don't have the ones about the table, then just spend some time, needle point it if you have to, and then just let it download in your life. This is one of those passages that if you look at some buildings, they have those deals uh, plastered over there. It's like in case of emergency, break the glass. That ought to be plastered on Psalm 23. In case of emergency, break the glass. So just break the glass grab Psalm 23. Don't just know it, but let's live it, okay?
Father, I want to pray for these uh, men and women that are watching. Thanks for a day of worship. We look forward to the day. We really look forward to the day when we can be with each other in person, rejoicing, singing, celebrating. We can't wait for that day. But until that day, until that day, until we can come to the church and celebrate together again, help us to be the church. Got to pray for that person out there that is just the victorious life in Christ seems foreign to him or her. I pray today that you would not let the enemy pull up a chair at their table. God, give them the wisdom, give them the verses, give them the spiritual defense to say, you know what? He's not welcome here. God, thanks for the victory that you bought and won at the cross. Help us, help us to live in that. Help us to fight today, not for the victory. You've won that. Help us to fight today from the victory that you have already won at the cross of Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen.